Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I interview Steve. Why would you ever vote for a rich person? He's a democratic socialist, retired firefighter, union activist, campaign manager, and former editor. We had a great discussion tonight on the American political landscape. I hope you enjoy the show. Solidarity forever. MC, good evening. How are you? Very good. So you got a lot of skills. You got a lot of experience. Why don't you tell uh, tell our listeners about yourself and maybe your background? Sure, sure. You know what's funny? I, I was I was brought up in a labor household. My dad went to the Second World War. Uh, I was born in 1948. So when the 50s hit, and of course, uh, you know, unionism really took off in America. It was really the birth of the middle class. Um, so I grew up in a household where my dad was involved with unions and. Uh, I used to sit upstairs at night and listen to the guys at the table talk union and talk about labor. And so I guess uh, that became uh, my focus as I got older. Um, so I, I attended college. I was a journalism major. Um, war in Vietnam broke out. I was involved with, um, you know, a lot of the work in the streets about getting the guys back home. And I had the, the misfortune of having between my high school and uh, college, knowing five guys that went over and never came back. Um and um, I was vehemently opposed to the war in Vietnam. And, uh, and as you know, I think one of the things that the boomers can be proud of is uh, we helped stop that war. So I feel that uh, that was one of the accomplishments we made during that generation. There was, of course, we were involved with the civil rights movement and another accomplishment, women's rights, another accomplishment. And all of that, while we were trying to invent sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So it was kind of an exhausting career, <laughs> just yeah. growing up. So later in life, as luck would have it, I had to be going to night school and I, I just got married and I needed a job. And a couple of guys said to me, you know what? The local fire department's well, putting on a whole group of people and uh, it's a good job for you. You can uh, work shifts and keep up your college education. And I grabbed that and it worked out. And so I was in one department for five years. And uh, while I was there, they were just starting to become unionized and they've had some problems with the city and et cetera. So pretty much we went to the mat and we got that union straightened out and they became one of the smallest but first locals in the state of Connecticut. I left there and went to the city of Waterbury. And uh, city of Waterbury is where I put in the majority of my career. And while I was there, I became the director of health and safety for the fire service, uh, which was the first time anybody had ever held that position. And we made tremendous changes. The fire service in the early 
of 60s and 70s and 80s um, was still uh, not what it is today. There wasn't civil service to hire people. You know, it wasn't knew you, who you knew. It was kind of who you blew to get on the job. So when we came on as the first group of guys that came on and were not hired under, and were hired under civil service, we didn't have any connections. So the bottom line is the only way to make yourself equal in a city like that is you got to organize. As it was, the city had a union, but it wasn't a very good one. And I think the incumbent of 150 new guys all at once just uh, energized it. And we became a very powerful labor union in, in the state of Connecticut. And uh, over the years, actually fought a number of uh, battles with the city over issues. Uh, one which, uh, in fact, got me fired along with nine other guys. But they had to reinstate us because they fired us illegally. So that was just uh, one of the many things I was involved in while I was in the fire service. But more importantly, I worked as a campaign manager in a, in a couple of local campaigns, one for a fellow who ran for state senator, another for a fellow who ran against the mayor of the city that I worked in, um, was successful in one and, and not so in the other. And I ended my career as the uh, chief lobbyist, first in the uh, city of Hartford, and then uh, we worked down in D.C. a little bit for the uh, uh, Uniform Professional Firefighters Association of Connecticut. And I think that my experience as a lobbyist gave me uh, real, as you'd say, kind of peek behind the curtain. And, um, you know, although I've always felt uncomfortable with a lot of things that happened, the Vietnam War, um, getting to watch John F. Kennedy assassinated, um, things like that shaped the generation that made you think that maybe America wasn't all it was cracked up to be, even though uh, the American dream certainly came true for a lot of people in the 1950s. It started to change rapidly. And um, when uh, the baby boomer kids hit the streets and the politicians in Washington, D.C. realized that maybe it wasn't such a good idea to teach kids civics <laughs> because they then took that to the streets and turned out uh, being on the streets for the civil rights movement, being there for the war in Vietnam, being there for women's rights, being there every chance we could possibly get to try and make a change. I, I think later in life, I sort of look back and I'm a little bit disappointed in my generation because I had expected a lot more, and hopefully, I expected a lot more, I think, to follow in the line of most of the guys I hung out with, and that was a, a more liberal bent, but only to find out that some of the very people we're fighting against today are indeed those very very same baby boomers. When I was in college in New Haven, uh, that's when uh, George Bush was there, uh, Kerry was there. Those guys were all at Yale University at the same time I was at the University of New Haven. So I think... Uh, Cynicism <laughs> and uh, just experience has made me take a real close look at America and where we've gone and what's happened. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't even know where to begin, MC, to talk about how we can change and where we can change it. Because it seems to me that in a rigged two-party system, which we just continue to support over and over again, we're left with so little choices I think the only the only real success I ever saw in a party being changed from within, believe it or not, it was the Tea Party. I think the Tea Party made a big difference in the Republican Party, not for the better, but I think it did show that you could definitely change the direction of a party if you're willing to sacrifice, and I think they did. Yeah, um, there's definitely been a, a rightward creep or maybe even a rightward, I don't know, uh, revolution. Um, you know, the Republicans just getting more and more, uh, you know, I guess separating themselves from typical parliamentary politics. They're kind of a uh, insurgent um, group of people that are anti 
worker, anti-economic change, anti-social change. Um, they cater to the religious uh, extremists for sure. Um, but, you know, I, I've seen some changes in the Democratic Party, too. Uh, I was uh, in school and kind of starting to be politically uh, conscious right around the Occupy Wall Street movement. I thought that that was really cool. Uh, and then yep. the Bernie, um, you know, kind of his takeover over the Democratic um, Party, uh, and he kind of got screwed by party shenanigans a couple of times. Uh, but, yeah, I've definitely seen some changes for sure, for worse, uh, in, the, in the Republican Party. Uh, but I've seen some positive changes in the Democratic Party, too. I'm all about working class politics. I'm, I'm all about unions, too. Uh, and, in fact, the, the majority of my family, uh, I think, identify as Republican or conservative or, or anti-union. Um, I'm in a union. I'm, I'm, I'm union strong now. Um, you know, I was kind of trying to find my way politically. Um, but, you, you know, you kind of you kind of have to have a foundation. And I think uh, unions are the backbone of, uh, you know, of the middle class. I think they, um, you know, they help to in increase um, wages for members and non-members. It has a ripple effect throughout the community. If, uh, let's say, a unionized workplace is paying their workers more on one side of town, you know, all the workplaces in town are going to have to increase their wages if they want to compete, you know. Unions also help to get uh, safety standards passed, um, benefits like the eight-hour workday, Weekends, um, retirement, uh, sick time. Uh, unfortunately, you know our healthcare is retired to our uh, employment in this country, making workers a lot easier to exploit. Uh, but yeah, typically um, unions are able to get better better healthcare for their members. So as I was kind of you know trying to figure out this political landscape in America, and it is a minefield. Um, you know that's what I kept coming back to. Uh, you know, over the last five or six years is, uh, you know, working class politics. I think there's a lot of cultural war stuff going on in America, a lot of divide and conquer stuff. But I think um, one way to make the lives better for everyone, you know, whether you identify uh, with a different race or religion or sexual orientation, I think if we can improve the lives of working people, that's going to have an enormous effect, you know, because we spend the majority of our lives the majority of our waking hours at, you know, a place of employment. So uh, I think, you know, that's kind of where I found my political compass is I'm all about working class politics. And I think unions are a great vehicle. Uh, I don't think we should stop there, though. I actually uh, I'm in favor of anarcho-syndicalism. I like that ideology. Uh, I like workers owning and controlling the means of production. But uh, anyways, I want to get back to some of the things you said. Uh, the American dream, the middle class. Uh, those things have all been destroyed. I think George Carlin said uh, that's why they call it the American dream, because you got to be sleeping to believe it. At one point in time, though, um, you know, American uh, citizens, um, you know, could have a, a nine to five job. Maybe even the wife stayed home to help uh, take care of the kids, cook the food or whatever. You only needed a single income at one point in time in America to own a house. Um, eventually, you know, that was um, that's all changed. You know, not only. Some, some homes now need both, uh, at least two incomes now, but sometimes, you know, two and three jobs. So just to That's kind of right. get by. Uh, and then right. um, what also, you know, at one point in time was, you know, owning a house. I mean, the, the, uh, the mortgages, the um, housing has just exploded, not just rent, but, you know, try to own, own your home too. But then, you know, I just remember like being able to take a vacation. A lot of people, you know, that's, that's no longer realistic travel expenses.
expenses and that sort of thing. Sometimes, uh, actually, I don't think any uh, vacation time is mandated by law in the United States. A lot of countries in Europe, four or five weeks minimum. In America, you're not guaranteed any sick time. You're not guaranteed any vacation time. We have a $2 trillion student loan debt crisis going on in America. We have a, a health care crisis. That's the number one reason for bankruptcy. We have a lot of social problems going on here. You identify as a democratic socialist. So I think uh, a lot of these you know, policies... At one point, maybe the Democrats had, uh, were in favor of them. Uh, that's kind of like New Deal politics stuff. But I think um, the Democrats left the working class decades ago. So what, do you, what say you about the American dream, the middle class over, the, over your lifetime? Have the, those, those words have meaning for you? And have you seen well, the demise of the middle class and the American dream over your years here? Well, you know, what you laid out earlier, MC, was exactly how I grew up in a I grew up in a family where my dad worked, my mom didn't. Um, you know, everyone in the neighborhood was like that. We got along on on the one income. Um, when my mom took a job part-time, we were then able to buy a boat and go on vacations. I mean, it was that easy to just take a single step up. Um, and, and, and in addition, my both of my older sister and myself both went to state schools and I went to the university school. We didn't pay anything to go to school. You didn't have to pay anything to go to school back then. It was very, very inexpensive. You had to buy your books. So, you know, it was a time when there was indeed free college education for you. Um, so, it and I watched each and every one of those things, as you spoke about, be, derode, be eroded, uh, each and every one of those things. So, the reality is, is that, yeah, the Democrats certainly had. The two-party the two party system really became a one-party system uh, because the American workers stopped moving forward. We stopped the, the, the dream stopped becoming being a reality. And now you're right. Two jobs and, and maybe three for a lot of households. Uh, mortgages, the cost of houses are, are just exorbitant out of you know out of sight. Houses that were $150,000 years ago now sell, sell for over a million dollars. It's 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 just insane. The economy's insane. But that's I think because so much of it is being driven, you know, by the rich. The economy's being driven by the rich. They they've they've got both parties in their pocket. And, and which is why I say, you know, it's it's very difficult. You can't make, make a change from the outside. The system is against you and really against you. But you got to change that party from the inside. And boy, the Democrats, have, you know, almost everything the Republicans that you point out to have done, good deal of it, they, they did because the Democrats allowed them to do it, allowed them to do it. I mean, you can't have one organization grooming Supreme Court justices through the Heritage Foundation, and then you act surprised when they put these clowns on the Supreme Court. Like you didn't know they were doing that. I mean, come on. The American people are not stupid. We're not, you know. I I think a lot of what the Democrats say they are in favor of, it's just uh, rhetoric. You know, they they try to win some political points by saying they're pro-choice, by saying, you know, they're going to codify abortion. They had plenty of opportunities to do so. Um, You know, they could have done a number of things. Uh, I just retweeted something um, earlier today. That Biden, you know, a lot of people were given uh, making excuses for Biden and the lack of, um, you know, meaningful changes that uh, a Democratic president. I go back to Obama, but you know, goes much further. Obviously, um, you know, apologizing. Oh, you know, they 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 didn't have the votes in the Senate, or they didn't have the votes in the House, or you know, you know, they they um, they couldn't get things done because there was infighting in the um, in the party. But uh, well, right. Good, something yeah. about Biden, he's surpassing and um, he's going, I guess, uh, 
He's going to give um, Ukraine money for war, bypassing Congress. He's giving right. Israel more money for carrying out genocide uh, in Gaza, um, you know, bypassing Congress. Um, you know, presidential, uh, you know, unilateral um, legislation. They can do it, you know, when it's something they are in favor of. But, uh, for example, um, you know, student, student loan forgiveness, you know, it was doomed from the get-go. Um, we knew that there was going to be right-wing, well-funded lawsuits, and, you know, it died. You know, the Supreme Court stacked uh, with the Republicans. But there's a lot of things the executive can do to kind of circumvent a dysfunctional government and they do it in the case of, you know, war and the military industrial complex, but for so right, they do, they could have easily given us healthcare, um, during the COVID pandemic. Um, you know, they could have made it an issue. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people are in favor of universal healthcare or state sponsored, uh, single payer healthcare or a Medicare for all. And the global pandemic would have been the best opportunity to kind of roll something out, at least an option, you know. And then once Absolutely. we have it, it would be a lot more difficult to take it away. But neither party, not the Democrats nor the Republicans, even made an effort or even talked about it. So I think right. the Democrats right. talk, you know, they give us a lot of uh, tongue-in-cheek about, oh, on the campaign trail, what they're going to do or how bad it would be if the Republicans get in there. And then they win, they win some political seats or they win the presidency, and they do the exact same stuff that they warned us about if a Republican gets in there. I mean, Biden has increased um, oil permits. He's got us in two wars. He's done nothing for student loan forgiveness. He's done nothing for health care. I was actually looking at the tax code. We're going to make billionaires pay their fair share. I read something that he increased the tax um, rate for the highest bracket of income earners by 2.7%. That's that's not even keeping up with inflation. That's insane. That's, that's doing that's right. nothing. That's right. That's right. No, you're absolutely right about that. It's true. You know, you you mentioned about when they've had a chance to do things. A good example is the Obama first administration. You know what I'm saying? He had a House and he had a Senate. He had an opportunity right then to codify Roe versus Wade. And his answer was, it's not even on our agenda. Well, because it wasn't on your agenda then, look at where we are now. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a classic example of them having the power and then not using the power. So it sounds like you were inside the political machine when you were a campaign manager, were you um, independent? Um, were you uh, third party? Were you no, no, Democrat? Democrat. So, yeah, you were, Democrat. You were, so talk to me about your experience as a um, as a lobbyist, as a campaign manager, and for you know being essentially inside that political machine. You saw it in Washington. You saw it in local politics. I'd love to hear about your experience a little bit. I've never been inside the political sh- machine. I only talk about it outside the system. But uh, what was your experience, and what did you learn about politics, uh, having been, yeah. been involved on it? You know, at, at the at the at, in you know, on the ground floor, essentially. It's uh, this. Uh, I think give you a little analogy. You know, when, when when you're in the fire service, some of the toughest fires, the fighter in the ghetto area. You know, the the, the housing is not the best, the, the, and you come back from the fire, and uh, you know, you feel you got to get in the shower, you got to get clean, you got to get the cockroaches out of your gear. You know that kind of thing. But I used to say when I came back from the state capitol of Hartford after a whole day, I felt a lot dirtier than that. I really did. Because when you get up there, it's a whole different game. The whole It's a whole different game. It's not. It's it's all about, yeah, you guys may want this or you may want that, but what's in it for us? But what's in it for us? And it's very, very difficult to make a change with them. No matter how good the idea is, I fought very hard to get the hyper heart and hypertension law in Connecticut. Uh, 
change to be more to, to to make it universal for everybody. There was a very very difficult battle, and they they put up a huge thing about it. And we would say to them, look, other cities, other states are, have got the issue solved. We brought them um, examples of Virginia and how Virginia solved their problem. But the thing is, they didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to listen. They didn't want to make a problem go away. You know, it was the, having the problems became like job security for them. So, you know, it was very, very difficult. D.C., DC I got to say, I was, you know, you feel... As big as you feel the politics is at a state level when you get to D.C., it was it was an entirely different, entire, entirely different thing. And uh, I'll tell you just an interesting story I had. I had a, I was down there and we were lobbying and we had at the end of the day and we went to the Senate building to have cocktails. So um, as it was John Glenn, Senator John Glenn was there, a number of other people, and we were standing at a bar and making cocktails and I ordered a drink and I said to, to bartender what I wanted. I, geez, he took the glass and he just filled it right to almost the top. And I said, wow. I said, have you made drinks for firefighters before? He said, no, but I make them for U.S. senators all day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so, so D.C., it was, you know, it was big. And the thing is, is that no matter who you go to lobby for, they ask where you're from, you go in and talk to them. And if you're a big corporation or a big company, you know, they'll sit down and they'll talk with you as long as you can. But if you're the fire service, the police, and you come in, they tell you the same things all the time. You know, we'll try to get you the money. We'll try to do what we can. We'll try to, but but you don't have the same clout. And, of course, after after citizens took place, now the, the, it's a whole different world. There's the people that can just give them endless amounts of money, endless amounts of money. And then there's everybody else who's trying to just get a, like the firefighters in New York trying to get there and the police officers trying to get the, 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 the 9-11 bill passed and the joke that the Republicans made out of that. And, you know, and here it is just trying to help first responders and they couldn't do it. There's an issue now that's up that affects a lot of people right now, and it's House Bill 82. And that had to do with the windfall elimination provision and the, and the government pension offsets which affects every firefighter, every police officer, every teacher, and every nurse in this country. And that's the law under Reagan where they took two-thirds of our Social Security away from us uh, based on the fact that we were allowed to work part-time jobs on the side. So, which is, I don't understand how those two things draw a line from one to the other because basically you took two-thirds of my Social Security money that I put into the Social Security. There's been a bill now before the Congress and the Senate, about before the House, H.R. 82. They've got 280, it's a, a ridiculous, a ridiculous amount of sponsor, and they won't put the bill up. And the bill is to repeal that law, to make every, all of those people whole again and give them their Social Security money back. The amount of widows that have gone into poverty because their husbands did not get to come around to Social Security is starting to get out of hand in the country. 2.7 million us are affected by it right now and the bottom line is is what you really need to think about is the other few million in this country that are in all those jobs that i'm talking about are still working under that exact same bill yeah and i think i've seen a huge increase in um people that are working later in life you know working into your late 60s and 70s instead of um, retiring with dignity with a nice pension 
Um, you know, these, these people are people are spending their golden years working for corporations, maybe as greeters or working the cashier or, you know, jobs that require them to stand for prolonged periods of time, maybe even doing physical labor. So unfortunately, you know, uh, they are unable to retire. They might never retire. They might die on the job, and this is becoming normal. And then um, it is the, media, yes. the corporate media, they're uh, publishing stories. I saw someone uh, working. They're 100 years old and still working. It's like, this is a great thing. Like, why is that a great thing? I want my, you know, all my golden years spent hopefully walking around the beach or uh, maybe reading a book, um, you know, just trying to spend time with family and friends, whatever. Certainly not working, though. These aren't great things, you know, working later in life and being forced to work later in life. I mean, I'm all for it. If you want to continue to stay active and involved in your local community, whether you want to work or do other things, I'm all for it. But uh, some of these people don't have a choice. You know, they, for, for example, like Medicare, I had a professor on he uh, lives and works. He lives and works outside of the you know the Philly uh, greater metropolis, and uh, basically said, uh, I guess this year was the first year that average rent around the city um, is actually higher than your monthly uh, Medicare benefit, or I'm sorry, Social Security benefit. So yeah, uh, yeah. you know you can maybe pay rent, or maybe not even afford rent without a roommate. What about groceries? What about a car? What about insurance? What about uh, out-of-pocket expenses for medical? What about uh, a phone, internet? I mean, just basic things that we all need to um, successfully um, live in, in a modern society. Um, they can't do it. You know, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, the inadequacies of our welfare state. Um, not only are some people without any benefits, but the minimal miserly benefits that we have, they're, they're not enough. And then the other thing is like, you know, the capitalists, they are so hell-bent and so focused on the next quarter's profits that they can't even see, you know, six months or a year into the future trying to, you know, maybe plan for the next pandemic or, um, you know, that, that kind of natural disaster, some sort of, you know, man-made disaster or natural disaster. But uh, when it comes to um, Medicare or Social Security, all of a sudden they're worried about funding maybe 70 years into the future. It's, uh, right. it's completely right. ludicrous. It is. It is ludicrous. That's exactly right. You know, I was, I was just thinking about, you know, what you were saying about the, the, them not taking the time out uh, from their day to think about maybe something beyond the next quarter. <laughs> Excuse me. And maybe look at the big picture. Like, for instance, what's, you know, what's going on with our plan and what we're going to do about that uh, um, and what they and what they the big people have decided they're going to do about it. And, you know, an interesting thing happened when I, 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 I tend to think that one of the biggest things that we face is the fact that, we're, you know, we're burning our natural resources a lot quicker than, you know, than we should than we should be. And consequently, we're going to run out of a lot of things rather quickly, you know, in, in the not too distant future. But but I but I think to myself. Wouldn't wouldn't it be wouldn't it be make more sense if somehow some way, you know, we cut production down, we cut the amount of usage down. Well, and then I watched what they did with COVID, and I thought to myself, you know what? If thin the herd is what it takes, that may be what they're thinking. We could stay here a little bit longer if we had a lot less people consuming. So between the wars that they start and, and what happened with the pandemic, you know, I kind of think that maybe they've realized there's nowhere they're going to go right away. So in the meantime, they better slow things down here or we're going to be in big trouble. I don't know. And, yeah, I think it would make a lot of sense to leave the dinosaur bones in the ground. We don't need to be digging up oil 
Um, I think we need to scale up green technology, renewable energy. I definitely don't think that uh, uh, electric cars are going to save us. I think what we need is um, high-speed rail. Uh, I think we oh, need God, yeah. Yeah, public transportation that works for working people. I think we need to rethink the city structure. Um, the, you know, the, the American suburbia, you know, this massive social engineering project all under the guise of defense, you know, producing roads and highway systems. That's essentially a direct subsidy to big oil, to big auto, because without these roads, you know, we wouldn't have uh, places to drive these big uh, hunks of junk. Uh, and then, of course, we have out-of-pocket expenses on fuel, gas, you know, we have uh, tires and roads, which is petrol products. Um, and uh, all these things, you know, the social engineering project, we could have easily had um, massive scale uh, public transportation, high speed yes. rail, like they do in Europe, yes. like they do in Japan, like they do in modern industrial countries. We have this suburban dystopian hellscape uh, where we're completely reliant. I'm down here in Texas. There's almost no public transportation, maybe a couple of buses, but outside of that, but we could have, um, you know, we could have high speed rail connecting cities, parts of the country, different regions, north, south, east, and west. Um, you know, subway systems, all different sorts of things, maybe something that runs efficiently so quick uh, and so frequently that we don't even have to check the schedule, you know, maybe every 15 minutes or every half hour. Yep, yep, um, yep. But uh, we don't have anything like that. I mean, we had it in Philadelphia. It was like the big East Coast city I've lived in. And uh, there was actually pretty good transportation throughout the city. But uh, uh -huh. I'm from Pittsburgh. There's not much public transportation there. I know Detroit, Auto City, uh, I think they, I think there was like a um, conspiracy, like all the big auto producers bought up all the public transportation and descaled them or dismantled them because, you know, this is going to be, this is going to be car town. And unfortunately the whole American um, transportation system is reliant on the car. So even if we, if, even if we transition to electric cars, I still think that we're going to have massive congestion, even if it might address the environmental crisis. But right. here's the other thing. I mean, if we're going to if we're going to power, if we're going to have fossil fueled powered powered plants, you know, energy plants, producers, whatever, to to charge our cars, what's the point? You know, unless we have green uh, energy powering these electric cars, yes, if, right, we're, if right. we're going to, you know, or if we have electric cars, but they're they're powered by power plants with uh, fossil fuels, you know, there's no point. There's no no benefit whatsoever. But, yeah, um, yeah <laughs> we're kind of getting a little bit into the um, weeds with the environmental crisis. I want to I transition back to oligarchy. You know, it's essentially maybe plutocracy, kleptocracy, government by the rich for the rich. Let's go back to um, the po political system a little bit. Maybe we can come back to the environmental crisis. And I'd love to do another couple podcasts. I think we have a pretty good connection here. So a lot of stuff to talk to. What uh, Talk to me about... Um, you know, your, your handle, why vote for a rich person? What inspired that? And, uh, you know, we, we have the best political system money can buy, right? So can you talk about it a little bit? Uh, talk about the political system, the oligarchy, government by the rich, for the rich. How do you see it? So, you know, it's a funny thing about how that started. And, 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 and here's the person who'll give credit for it. The woman who stood up and said, the system is rigged. And if you remember in 2015, that was Liz Warren. And, you know, once, once a GOP, always a GOP. So she got up and made the statement and said, you know, the system is rigged against us. And it's rigged against all of you. And then she walked away from that. And I was sitting at the table with my wife and we looked at each other and I said, geez, that was great information. But who the F rigged it? Let's, let's, let's look at that. And the funny, she didn't want to, 
She didn't want to finish that. She did, Elizabeth had, gave us a thought, but she didn't finish that thought for us. So the bottom line was we said, uh, let's talk about this for a minute. Who did rig the system? And without taking a whole lot of time and just looking at history and how we got where we got, we decided that the rich have rigged the system. So consequently, one thing led to another. And the next thing I know, my wife was doing a drawing of a T-shirt that had people picketing. And I, I liked the drawing and we liked the slogan. So we printed the shirt. It was my thought that possibly printing the shirt and getting it out and talking to people about where the problem lies with the system might be something that would catch on. But the reality is, MC, it really didn't catch on. It didn't. Because I think it's too both simple and convoluted for people to think about. Very, very simple to say, oh, yeah, but not so simple to say, but how do you fix that? But how do you fix that? And that's the and that's really the problem. And of course, but of course, with with, with Citizens United happening, we only made a bad situation worse. We really did. Um, the, 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 both parties, both parties, the DNC and the RNC, probably as bored as it could ever be. You yourself said, look at what happened to Bernie Sanders. And the reality is he probably would have been elected. They, they, the, the polls showed both sides would have supported him, and he definitely would have been elected. Yeah, I was so never Fox News poll. He was, uh, he was actually the most trusted politician by readers and uh, subscribers in this Fox News website poll. So even yeah, people right. on the yeah. right, you know, look at him as an honest guy. They might not like his politics too much, but they trust him at least a lot more than um, exactly. you know, a lot of the politicians on the right. Exactly. And I was so never Joe. And I was so, I've been never Joe ever since he was with Obama, only because I've watched his entire record in the United States Senate. And it's not that great a record. It's bad. Honestly, not for the people. Yeah. It's not a great record. So I got, so what happened was when, when all of a sudden a guy that was out of the race, Joe Biden got back in the race. I said, you know what? There's something so seriously wrong with the democratic party. And interestingly enough, who stayed in it to the end, but Liz Warren, just so she could put the dagger in and twist it a little further. So, you know, and all the I people thought, dropped out. Remember that those party shenanigans, I think uh, Bernie was winning. And then all of a sudden um, a lot of the other, uh, people that might split votes with Biden, they uh, dropped out of the race. Mayor Pete Barack, is one that I Barack remember. Barack got on the telephone. That's the story. Yeah, right. And, uh, the and story. all those people were rewarded, you know, with cabinet yep. positions or positions yep. within Biden's government. So, yep. Um, yep. But, exactly. uh, you know, that's the way it goes, I guess, in an oligarchy uh, and government by the rich, for the rich, party shenanigans, parties that are bought and sold. Essentially, you have a party where, you know, committee positions high-ranking positions within the government are bought. You know, usually in the past in America, they were given to people with seniority within the party, you know, having yep. served uh, long periods in Washington in a certain position or, or whatnot. But now they're essentially just given to people that put, uh, you know, the most money in the party's coffers. So uh, mm -hmm. these, these seats are just bought in the government by the rich for the rich, Citizens United. Uh, and, of course, that was ruled on by a Supreme Court that's been stacked I watched a good um, a documentary on PBS. Uh, that's essentially been um, Mitch McConnell's goal throughout his political career is to stack yeah. the, the, the judges, and he's done so. And he's uh, got the Supreme Court. They're probably going to be a right-wing reactionary uh, body for the next generation at least going to strike down any uh, legislation they don't like and just call it unconstitutional. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they, these, these justices have been groomed. Not only have they taken bribes and gifts, but they've also been groomed by right-wing think tanks, and, you know, voting on party lines, 
uh, very, very partisan. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I want to try to maybe transition to some optimism about the future. So uh, there's a lot of things that look bad, uh, but I think there's been a lot of good things. You talked about the civil rights movement and lots of other stuff. So let's yes. get to some good things uh, in the next few minutes here. What do you say? All right, so I want to be a total Debbie Downer. You've, you mentioned a lot of good things that happened over the course of your life. I hope to see a lot of positive change in my life, too. Um, you're, you're a part of the generation that uh, you know fought back against the Vietnam War, that stopped and ended the Vietnam War. That's a great thing. The civil rights movement, um, you know, ad- advancing the rights for minorities, blacks, women, students, um, you know, all, all different sorts of things. So talk to me about maybe the changes, hopefully for the better that you've seen. Obviously, there's been some right-wing creep of government for sure, but I'm not as concerned about that. I think the people, uh, especially the mass popular movements, have done a lot and accomplished a lot. I know the, the deck is stacked against this. It's an uphill battle. But I want to remain hopeful, optimistic about the future. I know we can accomplish some changes for the better, I think, uh, you know, what I want to see is grassroots, bottom-up kind of change, not this top-down political leadership stuff. I don't think we need bosses or leaders. I think we can do this ourselves. That's why, that's kind of what, um, you know, appeals to me about the anarchist tradition. Uh, no gods, no masters. So talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, positive social change, the civil rights movement, being part of the Vietnam protests and, uh, Maybe you can transition to some optimism and hope for the future. Let's let's bring this uh, Debbie Downer podcast and make it a little bit more uplifting. Now, things things that we can do to accomplish that change that we're all looking for. Okay, that's a that that's a tall order, MC. <laughs> when you, you take a look back it. at history, but yeah. but you but you are right. There are some a lot of a lot of good a lot of good things came out of out of the the, the Boomer generation. A lot of positive things came out. Um, and even since then, uh, some of the people that have gotten in power have moved things along and done some good things. Of course, we needed for a long time to talk about things like national health care. Um, you know, of course we did, you know, but we've still we've still got the issues of, of even trying to get women's equity, uh, women's rights, you know, equalized in the country. So we've got a long way to go. But I think you're right. And I think a lot of it has got to come from the bottom up, from the communities, um, you know, from the from the small towns and, and even in the cities, you know, the organizations that they get together to improve the cities, to improve the towns, you know, generally it's for the good of the people. The problem is, is that the money goes to a lot of the contractors and, you know, goes to, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, even even some of the most successful things they try and do have not turned out as well. But we've got to have hope. We, we've got to have uh, we've got to have an idea that there's got to be enough good people out here that we can't continue to have one party that does everything it can to possibly slow government down and make the things worse for the American people. And another party that steps forward and promises you a lot, but the reality is over the last particularly 15 to 20 years, their delivery has not been what it should be. They dangle that carrot, you know, and if they if they accomplish and deliver, they're not going to have that uh, carrot to dangle anymore. That's uh, what they use to get their campaign donations. So, yeah, absolutely. True. They uh, they oversell and underdeliver. That's the Democrats I'm talking about. Is, you know, but we talk about, so how, for instance, one of the biggest issues and one of the ones that goes on today, and we've seen it for years, is is the issue with our own border, with our own immigration. And the reality is, is all the money spent on the patrols, the border guys, all the money spent on the walls, it, the money would be so much better spent if they just sat down and negotiated some decent laws 
that would straighten the immigration problem out. It's not an unstuck. It's not a situation that cannot be straightened out, but it's got to be a, a, a situation where then one party's not going to decide to use it as a political club every four years. You know, that's the real reason why, and living as close to the border as you do and I do, you know as well as I do, this noise about the caravans coming over. You're seeing a lot of people out in Texas in hordes coming over, coming through the streets, all the noise they talk about. I live I'm in probably, New Mexico. Yeah, I'm probably about 15 miles from the border. Uh, I don't think there's any issues here. A lot of people in my local community have family and friends on both sides. I think a lot yep. of people that are coming over here are looking for a better um, future, you know, looking for a job. Right. We've destroyed right. um, the economies of Mexico with NAFTA and um, South America, starting with Reagan's terror wars. Um, and, uh, you know, we've, we've kind of uh, destabilized Latin America. It's been under the American U.S. sphere of influence for hundreds of years now. And um, no surprise, has some of the worst, um, yeah, you want to go back to the Monroe Doctrine, that has some of the worst inequality in the world. So it's the global south. It's been terrorized by the United States. So, you know, a lot of these people, they are coming uh, over the border so that, the, you know, they can find a, a job. And a lot of these people are doing jobs that you and I and maybe our friends wouldn't want to do. You know, a lot of custodial, janitorial positions, service positions, um, farming, you know, work, hard labor, you know. So, I mean, without without these people uh, coming over the border, I think the entire Texas and maybe the entire American economy would crash. So, and, and they're always walking this fine line where, you know, um, the, the, the migrants, uh, the migrant workers and the immigrants or whatever, they're lazy. They, they just want a free handout on welfare. But on the other side of their mouth, they're taking our jobs. So which one is it? Are they lazy or are they taking our jobs? You know, the, the, the argument is it's nonsensical. It's not rational. Um, the, this border before, you know, Anglos and white people like myself and my family, before we got here, you know, Native Americans were crossing, you know, I guess the indigenous, the Indians, whatever you want to call them. They were crossing this border for um, thousands and thousands of years. There was no arbitrary border or border wall. Um, this is very foreign to the culture in this area. Um, you know, we have imposed this uh, arbitrary government, these arbitrary borders. It's just a political stunt. Uh, I, I, I went over the border um, a couple of times. See this big, rusty monstrosity. Uh, if you just drive down maybe, I don't know, a couple of miles there's a big hole in the wall, so I don't ever see that there is going to be some disgusting monstrosity, uh, some border wall that spans, you know, the length of the border. I don't understand why you'd want that. I mean, it's it's expensive. Uh, it's going to, you know, cost money to build. It's going to cost, um, you know, uh, military servicemen, you know, policing it. Uh, and uh, it's just, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think they're, I mean, without... So we're all immigrants, you know, unless unless you have uh, Native American, indigenous, you know, Indian blood in you. You know, we're all we're all immigrants. This country was founded on immigration. Um, you know, so I, I think that uh, I mean, I'm an anarchist, so I oppose arbitrary government. I oppose arbitrary borders. Um, I think there is, are problems like there's real violence in terms of the cartels. But the cartels are there because America has a drug problem. There is a huge demand for drugs in America. We have this farcical war on drugs. So when you know, we, when the demand is huge and if it's illegal, if these, this is contraband, then unfortunately you open it up for the black market. So there's a lot of major 
problems going on there. But yeah, I think we can kind of get together and figure it out, you know. And I don't think uh, a militarized border wall or a war on drugs is going to solve any problems. No, it certainly hasn't solved them up till now. And as you said, many, many of the people that are coming across the border are seeking refuge from countries where the America had a whole lot to do with why their governments are so bad. So, you know, it's a situation. And, you know, you live in Texas. I live in, in, in New Mexico. Um, we live in a, I live 20, 35 miles from the, from the border, um, a very mixed population. Um, I, I've really seen something here that, and I've, I've been out here for 20 years now, that, that's made me extremely happy in this part of the country, and that is to see a multicultural state where people really live in, in good harmony with each other. Having the uh, indigenous people, having the, the, uh, um, the, the Spanish population, and having the Anglo population all together in one state. And, and except for the outback in New Mexico, the cities really, really get along well. Everybody gets along very, very well. Um, they've done some really positive, positive things. We're, we're very happy about uh, not that long ago that the Añate High School uh, had that ridiculous name taken off of their high school and made it Oregon Mountain High School because they'd had enough of uh, worshiping the conquistadors out here. So, you, you know, the, even with the Spanish population, uh, you know, getting behind and everybody getting behind it and saying these were the right things to do for the community. And then it's been a, it's been a joy for us to be out here um, because the people have worked so hard to work together. The Cruces uh, happens to be one of the, uh, the, the one of the 10th best run small community, small cities in the United States. Um, for for the, the reason that I say the entire 20 years we've been here, it's been in the hands of the Democrats. So, yeah. <laughs> so not for nothing. And, and, I, and, I and Texas, on 15, the other hand, has been just the other way around because of what the Republicans have done for 20 years. But I've also found that, like, I, I live very close to the border. I could drive there and be there in minutes, you know, less than an hour. Yep. And yep. Uh, I think nothing of it. Like, I'm, I'm not in, in, in a high crime area. I'm in a nice community. Uh, it's not an issue for me. Any any of the migrants that are coming over here, I don't think they're coming over here to, uh, violently or anything like that. I think they're just, again, like you said, seeking refuge, trying to find a safer place for maybe raising a family, finding a job, trying to lift themselves up, you know, and doing the best they can out of a bad situation. And I admire that. I think that's what America was founded on. I don't subscribe to um, nationalism. You know, I think uh, America, what is it exactly? If you're talking about the people, then I'm all for it. You know, that's, that's what America is. It's right. a, a group of people kind of coming together. It's not, it's not a flag. It's not a border. It's not, you know, some plot of land. You know, I think, I think, um, it is a culture. It was founded on a lot of good things. Like I think like some of the founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson wrote some good stuff, you know, but you can't, you can't, uh, you got to throw out the bad stuff. I mean, he owned slaves. He had a, he was very racist. So, uh, but, uh, you know, the declaration of independence, um, some of the stuff in the constitution, there's some decent stuff in there, you know? So, and I think uh -huh. that's the ideals of what America was founded on one of the, you know, first, uh, democracies. I mean, I guess ancient Greece was kind of the model, even though, you know, there's a lot of slavery going on in ancient Greece and a lot of inequality there. But, um, yeah, I think there's, there's some good stuff, you know, with America. I'm not a, a nationalist by any means or a right winger, but, um, you know, I think, I think it's a place of, um, you know, melting pot where people can come and seek refuge and, and, and have a better life. The American dream. I mean, some of those ideas. And that's our strength. Cool. Yes. Yeah. That, that yeah. is, that's exactly the strength. You're right about that. Is that mixing culture that comes in with ideas and, you know, and that's exactly what made their, our country as strong as it is. And, and this, and this thing where they consistently want to divide and conquer, but you know what? It works. It consistently yeah. works. 
you know, divide and conquer, divide and conquer. And that's why I think, you know, that's one of the things as you know, as somebody who belongs to a labor labor movement, the, one of the parts about a labor union that really does help work is it does put you all together in the same boat. No matter what nationality you are, if you're in there working with all the same people, represented by the same group of people, you become, you start to realize you're all pretty much the same. I'm very class conscious. I'm aware of the, the class war that goes on every single day. We're, we're losing the class war. We're, we've always left the class war. I think the history of humanity is, you know, class war. Kings and queens and inequality, peasants. I mean, that's riddled throughout history, uh, and especially, you know, with Citizens United, uh, that kind of ruling with that equated speech with money, which is ludicrous. And now a handful of billionaires have as much wealth as the bottom 50% of this country combined that is ludicrous that's outrageous that should not be uh i mean if you believe in democracy majority rules so 51 fit 49 you know but unfortunately with the money in politics you know a handful of billionaires have as much political power as maybe 150 million people when you look at speech uh, as, as equated to money so that's a really bad thing and that's why i'm very class conscious because I identify with working people, even if you are a working person and you identify with republicanism or right-wing politics, unfortunately, um, maybe we don't see eye-to-eye politically. But I'll tell you what, we have a lot more in common with any billionaire sitting on their mansion and you know their private jet or their yacht. You know, So uh, that's what I'm trying to do is try to bring working people together in this class war that's one-sided. And, uh, you know, it's kind of us versus them, you know, the 99 percent versus the 1 percent. And unfortunately, the 1 percent right now is still winning. Yes, that that's right. But but you're absolutely right. And that is the most important thing we, you know, just down here, the community can absolutely do is just you've got to get people together and say, as you said, we sh- we really do share the same common goals with people. And we certainly also share the same problems with them, which are very, very different from the ruling class. The rich people, very, very different issues completely. And the thing is, is that the system got so game that it actually got out of our own control. You know, we, we, we've not had control for years and years and years. And, and, the, and the question is, if we're going to move forward, how can we possibly get this control back? You know, I, I, I don't know. I wish I did. Organize. I I Organize with like minded people. That's how we do it. Alone, we can do nothing. But together, we can accomplish things. But uh, well, that, you know, that's it's slow. It's a slow. It's a slow process. And I think a lot of people are waking up. But we certainly don't have the amount of awareness or organization to, you know, bring the capitalists and to, to bring the capitalist machine to its knees. If you look right. at like my favorite time period, 1930s Spain, the anarchist revolution, they had uh-huh. general strikes. You know, they, they, they had worker takeovers, you know, of plants. They had city takeovers where, you know, this um, anarchist, you know, militia and uh, organized workforce took over parts of the country. We're so far from that. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. But, um, you know, that's why I think um, education is important. That's kind of what I'm trying to do is get these ideas out here. Before I started reading about the anarchist revolution and before I started reading Chomsky and philosophy, um, you know, I was kind of lost. And this kind of stuff isn't taught in schools. I don't think they ever mentioned the general strike or workers' rights no. or anything like that. No. Um, there's a lot of, and I want to talk to you about this too, uh, throughout history. I don't know if you've seen it uh, throughout your, um, you know, uh, life's, But, uh, you know, like McCarthyism, the Red Scare, the constant buzzword, the fear of communism, you know. And I think, unfortunately, people are so propagandized that they learn to equate 
basic human rights with communism. And I'm no communist. I'm an anarchist. I don't want a bureaucratic, centralized state, uh, you know, a dictator like Stalin or Lenin. I don't, I think, you know, we can do this ourselves. No gods, no masters. Uh, that's kind of my anarchist uh, motto. But um, have you seen, you know, and I think, I think when you say communism or socialism, what I, what I hear and see is, you know, worker-owned, worker controls, you know, workers owning and, and being involved with the, the um, you know, the means of production, democratic workplaces, democratic communities, democratic politics. So, um, you know, I think communism has a lot of meaning to a lot of different people. But uh, again, yeah, it's kind of a scare word. It's kind of a buzzword here in America. People learn to associate like, uh, you know, human rights like education and healthcare. And, um, you know, maybe even benefits like time off, you know, with, uh, you know, with communism. And I, I think they, they got it all misconstrued. So how about uh, in, in your in your history, in your life, have you seen, you know, McCarthyism, Red Scare, communism, you know, anti-communist propaganda, all that kind of stuff? Have you noticed that or what's, what's your experience? You know, an, an interesting thing, because you, you did mention it about the, the propaganda issue, probably one of the, along with some of the things that have hurt us the most, the the when they eliminated the fairness doctrine, when they eliminated the fairness doctrine, they took the ability to continue to educate the people politically, at least from both sides, away. They took it away. There was now, it, it was created, it was the, 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 the fodder that created something like Fox News. Because as long as people can get out and say anything they want, and nobody's going to challenge them, people are going to listen to it and people are going to become brainwashed. Television could have been much, much more of a tool to educate the public than it turned out to be. It's kind of turned out it to be. Still a can bit be though. It's they own the they own the media. They, they're corporations just like any other um, sector yes. of the economy. They own the information systems. But if we had a democratic takeover of the media, public education, uh, if we had the takeover of um, you know the information system and the internet, I mean even social media like Twitter. I mean, what if it was democratically run, whether by the workforce or, you know, the participants of the Twitter community, whatever, and not just top-down stuff, Elon Musk, whatever he says goes, you know. So, yeah, they're, they're, unfortunately, we left a lot of opportunity on the table, and there's a lot of bad stuff that resulted from elite takeover of corporations. That's the vehicle they kind of use to control society and the information systems and the education, the systems of indoctrinating the youth, all these sorts of things uh, but that also leaves us with opportunities to the future. I mean, we have the infrastructure in place. We have the media, the Internet, all these things that were, um, you know, created, publicly funded, you know, and then eventually just given away to people like Bill Gates. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we again, we left a lot of opportunities on the table, and there's some stuff that the left didn't capitalize on that we should have over the years. But that doesn't mean we can't take it over now or in the future, you know. We just got to organize. That's true. And, uh, you know, they, I think uh, I retweeted this the other day. Uh, Malcolm X said something about um, they don't have us outnumbered; they have us have us out organized. We got to organize. We got to come together, and that's what again I'm trying to educate people and hopefully connect and organize with others. So hopefully people listening to this podcast, Steve, why would you ever vote for a rich person? Hopefully they can find you, connect with you on social media, and you know together we'll be we'll build this left working class political movement. I think we can, we can do it. Uh, it's just, unfortunately uh, an uphill battle, but, uh, we were, we're, you know, staying on the, on the backs and shoulders of working class people, generations that came before us. I just retweeted a picture of a 1940s steel mill early today in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. There was the homestead riots and all that kind of stuff. Workers, you know, yep. 12 hour workdays, no weekends. Um, you know, lots of, uh, 
accidents and deaths and injuries. We have a whole lot better steel mill, you know, in Pittsburgh because of generations of organized um, union steel workers that came before us. So, you know, we don't have the same kind of problems they had in the 1940s when I retweeted that picture, or certainly not in the late uh, 1800s with the Homestead riots when the security forces, the Pickertons, came up and just right. shot up and killed the striking workers, you know? Yes. Yes. You know, you mentioned something, MC, before about the Spanish and, and, the, and the work guilds in Europe. And, you know, it's some, a, a lesson we never learned because in Europe, they'll shut a whole country down. The French are, the French are famous for that. Look at the farmers' protests. I just retweeted a, 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 a Instagram video. Oh, my gosh. The farmers' protests. Tens of thousands of farmers with their tractors. And they just went and, I guess, uh, uh, outside of government buildings, they're spreading manure and shutting down yes. the roads. I yes. mean, come on, these guys <laughs> yes, are wild. <laughs> they did. And, and, and you know, it's a, it's a lesson that should have been learned here. And it's where, one of the things I've always been a little bit disappointed in American labor is that it, it, they haven't be, they haven't taken the opportunity to build themselves big enough that they can do that kind of thing. They can call a national strike. You shut a country down Amer- uh, like America for a couple of days, it'd be a game changer here. It really would be. But, you know, labor, the thing is, you know, labor, too, got a little bit rich and started to play the game like everybody else did. You know, at the top, but but the reality is the, la- is, the labor it, leaders at the top, not the workers, but the leaders. At that's the right, top. the leaders. Oh yes, yeah. the leaders. That's what I'm speaking about. Of course, yeah, I've, I've gotten. But but here's the opportunity. I've always wanted to see an American progressive labor party. Always wanted to see that. Felt that labor w- could be the forefront, not only of organizing the people for 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 work, but for so many many other things in the country that we could accomplish. But but but. It would be a third party. And you and I already know the system is so game to prevent a third party that it's got to happen from the inside. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually not too big on political parties. But, yeah, I think with the way the system is, I'm an anarchist. I'm not much of a joiner, but uh, I'm yep. certainly not into the mainstream political parties. But, yeah, I'm definitely open to uh, a third a third party, um, you know, one with a little bit more reach, hopefully, you know, winning seats uh in local government, state government, and eventually the national government. But, um, yeah, I think that if there was ever money and this third party ever got big and got a lot of corporate donations, I think they would just be as corrupted as Democrats or Republicans. Yeah, <laughs> yes, inevitably. If it was a small party, you know, if it was the underdog, then, yeah, I think it could, like the Greens do, you know, I think they say a lot of great stuff. But I think if a couple billionaires ever said, hey, we're going to take over the Green Party and we're going to, we're going to build it up and we're going to win seats. And, you know, once the funding went up and once the, the power increased, uh, I think the Green Party could potentially be corrupted, just like, again, the Democrats and the Republicans, who at this point, yeah, we have a one-party system, as Chomsky might say, uh, moderate Republicans. So whether you're Biden, John McCain, Mitt Romney, I don't know, Trump's a little bit of a wild card. But, you know, I think the last, I mean, essentially Reagan's been president since the 1980s. Just, you know, just a little bit uh, different faces, you know, but the, <laughs> yeah, essentially the yeah, same policies. Yeah. Oh, they love them some Reagan. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that, that's so great. So, you know, go, as, a, as, a, as an anarchist, I need to ask you this uh, for because certainly someone that was a hero of our generation. What's your feelings about Che Guevara? Uh, yeah, I, I honestly, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know too much about him, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not for violence, you know, so I think, um, you know, I think that there's a, they're trying to win, you know, I think he was killed right in action or something like that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I think it's admirable, um, but I don't know too much about him, but I, I'm, I'm for peaceful revolution. So if you have, if you ask me for like a role model, I mean, MLK, I think that's as good as you're going to get. So peaceful revolution. Yeah, I, I think if you're yeah. going to. 
If you're gonna if you're or gonna try to beat them at the game of violence, they're gonna win, you know, because they got nukes yep. and tanks and you know they got battleships. You know what I mean? So um, right. yeah, I mean, I think I, I like uh, Orwell. He wrote a really good book on the Spanish Revolution, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, fighting off the fascists, I think it was admirable. But the fascists were gonna win, you know. They had they had uh, you know, I mean, Hitler almost conquered the world, you know, with with the force of, uh, of Germany. So unfortunately, yeah, these left leftist um, revolutions, you know, I think the, 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 they're gonna be most successful if they're peaceful. Uh, I think, yes. um, you know, violence, uh, that's, that's the right's game. You know, that's, that's, that's the power, the powerful love it when there's violence because they, they know they're going to win. So, uh, and it, sometimes it makes, uh, makes us look bad because it's easy to propagandize. Like, uh, like anytime there's a protest in the city, you know, um, if there's windows smashed and crime and looting, you know, it's always an excuse like, Hey, we need militarized police. Look at these. Look at these left-wing anarchists or, you know, whatever. And it's usually like a couple of bad seeds. And a lot of time it's instigators on the right that are trying to make the left look bad. So, uh, but they, they, cops. Yeah. <laughs> so let's, let's, yeah. let's transition there. So you're a firefighter. Yeah. You've had some experience um, with police. How do you feel about police? Uh, how do you feel about community policing? I mean, is that is that a, is that a decent solution? How do you feel about uh, the militarization of police? Do you want to defund the police? Do you want to fund the police more? Do you want to abolish the police? And maybe you can talk about some of your experience. A lot of uh, my, I had an uncle that worked in uh, city government and said the majority of the budget uh, went to police and paying off lawsuits for victims of police violence. So we're spending and wasting so much money uh, on the police in these local communities and programs that could be going to schools, um, you know, recreations and parks libraries, I mean, all sorts of good things, but unfortunately, uh, we're using it on militarizing the police, training them to kill us and commit violence against us, and also, when they commit violence and, and victimize us, then we have to pay out lawsuits, you know? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's an interesting thing, because like so many other things, you you, you got to connect the dots. First, we have to realize the police are not there to protect the public. They're to protect the property of the wealthy. You know, that's that's the first thing. The second thing is, is that for years, the tradition in the police offices was you're in for to serve the community. But the reality has been over the years that you don't always hire the brightest bulb, or we used to say the guy that came out number one, because they're the hardest people to teach that you don't really necessarily want them to take care of the public. What you really want them to do is violate other people's human rights. And I've always said this to the officers that I had to work beside. Your inability to self-police makes every one of you a coward. And I don't care if you like it or not. The reality is, if you cannot tell your partner, you know what, you're violating that person's human rights, and I will turn you in if you continue to do it, you're a, excuse me, you are a coward. And that's it. I worked with a lot of brave guys in the fire service. I saw people who risked their lives doing a lot of incredible things, incredible things. And I never, ever, ever saw any of them, ever, do anything that hurt anybody else. I used to say to the cops, you know what? When we pull up, everybody's glad to see us. And when you pull up, things only get worse. You only make the situation worse. And I've seen it over and over again. And it's all got to do with the fact that, that you know, they give, them, they give them the money, they give them the money. But the reality is, where does the money go? They're buying military equipment. They're buying, you know, SWAT people. I always see, I see the guys in SWAT and they always say, what is it, Halloween? What are you dressed up for? What are you doing? You know, it's all yeah. overkill. It's ridiculous. Right. It's ridiculous. They're just... 
they're just so completely full of themselves. They're really difficult to work next to. They just are. Yeah, they look like and, they're getting ready to storm the beaches in Normandy or something like that. Not uh, exactly you know, right. Local citizens. And it always and the, and the fault always lies at one one point. And the fault lies usually with the chief. It's always with the chief because he sets the tone for how that department is going to react. And you're so right about the fact that they have no accountability whatsoever. If they started suing the police officers, their hands would come off immediately. They'd stop touching people. They would immediately, the minute you started suing them. But as long as the taxpayers got to pick the bill up, it's open It's open season on everybody that they decide to handcuff and beat. Because if that doesn't prove you're a brave guy, I guess nothing does. And Yeah, I mean, even if you want to go to some of the school shooting stuff, uh, we got these militarized, uh, you know, SWAT team, special forces, police, and uh, what do they do? But they wait outside for the coast to, to be clear, and then they'll go in and, uh, you know, mop up. What a travesty. Or, yeah. I know, what a travesty. Yeah. 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 So, and that's and that's it. and the amount of money that's been spent on them and the militarized equipment that they have and the stuff that they have that that they're capable about to use against citizens. And you know the other thing that you mentioned before about the riots and stuff. Many many times, many many times, a lot of it has got to do with the violation of the First Amendment. People do have the right to peacefully assemble, you know. And and when they get out on the street and they peacefully assembly, and the next thing you know, the cops attack. Well, now all of a sudden you don't. Have your you don't have your constitutional right. right. It, it might be peaceful, and yet they're still shooting rubber bullets that could. I've seen people lose their eyes, or at least it could yep. be extremely painful. Uh, chemical warfare, tear gas, or whatever else they're spraying. Um, yep. You know, and uh, essentially, you know, I, I see police as the class enemy. I mean, they're class traitors. They are, um, you know, very loyal servants to the ruling class. They're usually paid pretty well or, you know, given good benefits and status in society. Um, you know, and, and I talked about it a little bit, too, uh, about my background, where I'm from, western Pennsylvania, the Pittsburgh area, still town, um, you know, one class of proud working community. Um, but, yeah, who, who broke up those uh, strikes and workers trying to fight for better wages and dignity and, uh, you know, um, less working hours, better workers' rights, more safety standards. It was usually the police, you know, to break up those, um, you know, those those uh, organizations and those strikes. And, um, you know, they were hired by, you know, the, the robber barons, the, the steel, um, you know, the steel barons or whatever, Carnegie. And, and that's, you know, throughout history, uh, you know, the, the police are, uh, usually the class traders. They're, they're usually the ones fighting yep. against us. And uh, that's how the Pinkerton videos, started yeah. out doing exactly that, breaking strikes. Right. That's right. In, in France, right. yeah, I, I saw some of the fire uh, department, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to propagandize the, the, the fire because I mean I'm all for fire and uh, demonize the cops, but I did see some videos where yeah, the, the firefighters were right out there with the protesting, you know, uh, French uh, citizens, you know, protesting against their corrupt government and uh, you know so what about you know firefighters generally is there a rift is there uh, some animosity um, between the cops um, or do you get along you know pretty well well you know it's a funny it's funny you should mention that because yeah that you know well that we try to get along well and we try to work you know next to the best we can but as as you've pointed out you know they've got their own agenda they, they really do have their own agenda and you know, I just I, I kind of lost a thought on that that I that I wanted to tell you about. I, maybe it'll it'll come back to me, but I just I've just always felt that there that the whole the whole the thing is this: as a professional firefighter, you, you take an oath, 
And that oath has to do with protecting the public. They take the same exact oath as you do, the exact same oath, but they don't. And they never, ever, ever do their job in the, in the correct way that makes the people not want to say, we need to uh, have citizens on the police board. These people, the police need to be policed. Yes, yeah, citizens the oversight. never had the fire service. Po- police, Back police, in the police civil citizens oversight, yeah, not this internal yes. investigation stuff. Hey, we got less than uh, five minutes, so let's wrap this up. You had an interesting story. Aliens, New Mexico, Roswell. I'll just give it to you. The stage is yours. You got five minutes. I want to hear about this story. God, give you. It's a good story. And a real quick one, I'll tell you. For, for a number of years since I've retired, I have an online business. And part of my online business is we liquidate estate, estates. And we uh, got hired by a, a local har- archive to help them liquidate a lot of stuff that they had in, uh, in um, big, large uh, trailer trucks. So one of the estates we liquidated happened to be of a gentleman who was retired from the military, and he was in a, lived over in Alamogordo, New Mexico, and um, he was a retired Air Force officer, and he was stationed at Wright Air Force Base, which is now closed and has been closed for some time. But the significance of Wright Air Force Base is they're the people that responded to the Roswell crash. Okay, so as we were going through all these things and finding all these different things that had to do with his family and those other things, we came across... A very interesting thing, and it was a plaster cast mask that was made, and it was the, the face of an alien. And it was we, we, so we took it, and we had some people look at it. And so I was saying, "Well, what's this?" It, it was uh, not human. Uh, you didn't. You, you looked like an alien, and it had the big. Yes, eyes, it was the face. It was not human. It was the though, face right? of an alien. As a matter of fact, and if uh, if you go on our my site right now, I have, I've actually got it on my my store site to show people uh, what it looks like. So. At any rate, we we found this thing, and I got some people to take a look at it and say, well, it's plaster of Paris, and, you know, we could probably date this in the early 50s. It looks to me like maybe this was done as a, a project or something. And I said, but yes, but let's talk about this, the mold. Where did the mold come from? There had to be a mold in order to have put a plaster into And then we got talking about how it was painted, and the thing was meticulously painted with paints blended in yellows and greens and put on it in such a way as that whoever was doing it was trying not to get it wrong. You know, it's not like somebody just said, well, I think this is what an alien looks. We'll give it some yellow. It wasn't like that. The features were very detailed. The shadings, the lack of a nose and the lack of a mouth and just very prominent eyes, very interesting head, not very similar to sort of what we've seen, but not exactly what we've seen. So, a couple of people said, you know, it could have been a scout project. His son was an Eagle Scout. Maybe he did this for the scouts or whatever the reason was. But the reality is, is we came to it in our possession. And I've said to a number of people, I said, for my money, I think, quite honestly, it may be the death mask of an alien. It very well could be. It came from the right place. It came from the right house. It came from people that were intimately involved with it. He was a top-ranking officer at Wright Air Force Base who could have easily gotten gotten a, a, a good enough look at or at least found that they took a death mask off one of these creatures of whatever they were. And 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 that's the interesting thing that I have that goes with New Mexico. Living in Las Cruces, we have a professor that works over at the University of New Mexico who wrote a very good book about aliens and also knows an awful lot about the actual occurrence that happened in northern New Mexico where not only did a UFO land, but they actually removed it. The Air Force actually removed it on a flatbed and took it. And he, because he was a professor at the university, got a chance to take photographs of the road that they built to get it out. So it's pretty interesting. And I've had an opportunity to speak with him about the mask. And he, too, 
thought that it was a pretty fascinating discovery. And like you said, it either is or isn't, but it's certainly a fascinating discovery. Fascinating. That does sound uh, pretty good. I think uh, I think I'd like you. To, we, we're, we we've texted each other and called each other in preparation for the show. If you wouldn't mind, please uh, text me a picture of that. Um, but hey, let's stay in contact. I really enjoyed our conversation tonight. Uh, I think we had a lot of you know good points, uh, and I'm sure we have plenty more to discuss. Uh, let's stay in, let's stay in contact, and uh, you know maybe let's do this again sometime. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about your. Views of aliens, the universe, uh, Roswell seems to be a hotbed for UFO sightings and whatnot, uh, but uh, it's been fun. Uh, Steve, why would you ever vote for a rich person? Anything else you'd like to say? You got one minute. Go ahead. MC, thanks so much. I really appreciated it, and uh, you know what? You're doing a terrific job, and I'm hoping you're reaching a lot of people, and you're on the right path, my brother. Thank you. All right, my man. Stay in contact. Have a great night. Appreciate it. Will do. Steve, why would you ever vote for a rich person? For a great talk on the best political system money can buy. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. No gods, no masters. I'm out. Fucked up.